0: Hello and welcome to this Head Talks podcast. I'm Terry Stiastny and I've been speaking to John Sane about what the future holds for all of us. John believes that our fear of the future results from us being stuck in old patterns of thinking. So, how do we turn and face the strange?
1: My name is John Sarney. I am an author, a speaker, and a strategist. I help organizations and governments prepare for the future. My research really focuses in on the human software upgrade process. I think the world is very much enthralled with AI, blockchain, and all sorts of other exciting technologies. But somehow, we've forgotten to upgrade ourselves to deal with this much uncertainty. And this is where all my focus is sort of directed.
0: As you just mentioned, technology at the moment is changing at a really rapid pace. You know, the world is constantly full of new inventions and new environments. Are human beings being left behind by the things that other human beings have created?
1: Well, I think it's because our focus has been focused so much on technology, bringing about more efficiency and profitability. What we've forgotten to do is trying to figure out how do we actually cope with so much uncertainty and so much exponential change. And as this change speeds up, the more there's panic and anxiousness in the populace around the world. And we can see this because the pharmaceutical industry is worth double what it was worth seven years ago. And this shows us that more and more people are utilizing pharmaceuticals and alcohol and anything else to try and escape the incredible levels of change. And so really, it's, it's, it's very exciting, all the technology that's changing. But as human beings, I don't think we're coping at all. And we can see this because we revere silicon valley we revere moore's law we're always talking about technology but nobody's talking about a silicon valley for human beings or a moore's law of exponential change and upgrade in our way we think for human beings and so we've lost our track and i think it's really important for us to refocus on how we evolve ourselves while technology is also evolving automatically
0: it's interesting you say that you know this is these are times that are changing sort of exponentially fast do you think it's partly that there has always been change in the world but we just know about it more I mean if you lived in medieval times there might have been plagues there might have been wars there might have been all sorts of things that seemed absolutely terrifying but you might just not have known about things that weren't happening in your own village or your own area
1: I think that is definitely part of the process but without doubt technology is reaching a Uh, sort of milestone, and if we look at any of the charts that come out of the Singularity University sort of studies, it shows us that we are very much higher on the chart of exponentiality. So just like a, a snowball is catching momentum, moving down a mountain, it's definitely speeding up. And I think that the access to more information and to see more of it around the world also adds to that. So the sharing of information that's more ubiquitous today also adds to the speeding up of it. So, yes, I think at every stage of humankind, there seems to be a panic that there is this sort of change or strife that's going on in the world. But today, because of the ubiquitous access to all this information constantly, it's even more Um, sort of magnified in many ways.
0: So what do you think that it is that we as individuals need to do to be able to adapt to this kind of rapid change?
1: Well, if you you want to just like take a very broad uh, sort of picture of this, uh, we think about agricultural times and for 10,000 years, there were very strict rules that we followed as a human civilization to survive and thrive. And the rules for 10,000 years in the agricultural times were simple. Follow your forefathers, understand the seasons, and work for 16 hours a day in the field. And if you followed this very simple process, you would become successful. Your family would eat, your village would be healthy, and you could take something to the market to trade. And eventually, this built towns and cities. But about 200, 250 years ago, when the steam engine arrived and the Industrial Revolution began, our physicality became irrelevant because of the steam engine's power and the combustion engine's ability to go faster uh, and longer than we could. And so 250 years ago, we started to develop something called IQ, an intelligence quotient, our ability to be analytical, driven for outcomes, and really focused in on this economies of scale system. And so for the last 200 years or so, we've developed our IQ. But just like the steam engines arrived and replaced our physicality, we now have artificial intelligence that's replacing our IQ. And so what has happened is that we have to now elevate ourselves into a new skill, and I call the skill AQ. And this skill is adaptability quotient. And at the heart of adaptability quotient, in order for us to be truly agile and adaptable towards anything that comes at us, we need to have very, very high levels of emotional intelligence. Because emotional intelligence allows us to be naturally optimistic and adaptable for the future. And so what we have to think about is how do we go about developing this new skill? And ultimately, it comes down to two things And through my research. One of them is understanding our psyche, understanding our personalities. And our personalities are made up of our memories and the stories we've decided to hold on to. And when we carry trauma in our stories and our memories, we are continuously triggered. And when we are triggered, we are very low in our emotional intelligence. A great example of this is Donald Trump, who's an eight-year-old boy who just can't get out of his trigger. He's constantly triggered back to an abandoned boy that he was. And so he's very low in his emotional intelligence, which means that he's highly unadaptable and because of this inability to be adaptable he wants to go backwards rather than actually forward towards something new because the unknown is scary for people that are being triggered the second thing that we have to realize is that the industrial revolution has created human beings with a very specific brain wave and the brain wave that most of the world is addicted to is called a high beta brain wave and a high beta brain wave is This brainwave that says i'm very focused i'm addicted to certainty i'm continuously anxious i'm catastrophizing the future and i'm preparing with adrenaline in my body and most people in the world suffer from this level of anxiousness and frustration and anger and sadness and bewilderment of what's going on and again we can see this because the pharmaceutical industry's business has doubled in seven years showing us that we are numbing ourselves not actually dealing with this adaptability need that's necessary for us. So for me, and through my research of neuroscience, I've started to realize that we have to change our brain waves to an alpha brainwave. And an alpha brainwave is somebody who is imaginative, energized, focused, but relaxed. And it's in this relaxed state that you allow your body to become truly creative, to move out of danger to creation, to move out of an addiction to certainty to one of curiosity. And the best way to describe an alpha brainwave, if you don't meditate, or if you don't have that process uh, in your in your skill set, is when you come back from holiday, the very first day when you come back from holiday, everything is so amazing. That idiot at work that you don't like, you have no issue with him, that rubbish on the floor doesn't bother you, that politician doesn't irritate you, your spouse can do whatever they want, it's okay. And the f- minute you're back at work, after about an hour, you realize that you can't even remember that you were on holiday. And what has happened is that through holiday, what you did was you changed your brainwave from a beta to an alpha. And the minute you get back into your normal life, you go back into beta. And so we joke around that we need wine o'clock every single day. We joke around that we just need to release ourselves because there's just so much stress in the world. But ultimately, it comes down to two things, unhealed trauma and a high beta brainwave. And when we're able to elevate ourselves past those two things, we actually elevate ourselves and become emotionally intelligent and adaptable and now become truly creative. For a world doesn't need analytical thinking anymore because artificial intelligence is doing that better. doesn't need human beings that are addicted to certainty, but human beings that are collaborative, imaginative, and curious. And so this is really, in a nutshell, what I think we need to be doing.
0: So how do you suggest... Sort of individual, on an individual level, people get over this kind of, I suppose, cognitive dissonance, if you like. How do you preserve your sort of nice just-been-on-holiday feeling in a world that is constantly coming at you fast?
1: Well, look, the world is coming at you fast anyway. The way you perceive the speed at which it's happening is the real key here. And we, as human beings, have spent billions of euros and dollars on looking good. We have gyms, we have supplements, we have clothing brands, we have perfume brands. We have so many external ideations about looking good. So you ask somebody how to lose weight, they can tell you in two seconds. And you tell them how, what, you know, where they buy their clothes from, they can tell you. But most people that you speak to don't have somebody that they go to to help them heal trauma. They don't have a practice that allows them to find stillness within themselves in a the process of meditation so that they can approach the world in the day ahead in calmness. And so what I, what I say to my audiences is, who here can't meditate? And usually 70% of the audience's hand goes up. And the reason is, is that people can't sit down and meditate because they're addicted to a high beta brainwave. And so it's really quite simple. is How do you go about finding somebody to help you deal with your trauma And how do you go about picking up a practice, just like you have one that goes to gym, goes for a walk, um, you know, we all have habits throughout the day. But how do you actually now put a bit of time aside to go into a process of practicing uh, a meditative uh, practice? And so for me, I practice meditation twice uh, a day between 45 minutes and an hour and 15 minutes and I have family constellation counselors and facilitators I have NLP um, therapists I have all sorts of ranges of people together with my PT and together with my stylist they're all part of a tool set that I think we all need to be engaging with but most people don't give the emotional state enough attention And once we scratch that surface, you'll see there's many teachers and many helpers out there if you're starting to ask the right questions.
0: For most people, that's a huge luxury, isn't it? I mean, most people don't have the resources to be able to have uh, a personal trainer or a stylist, let alone all of these other people to help. What can you do if that's not something that's accessible to you?
1: YouTube. (laughs) YouTube has got (laughs) all of these people on there and it's absolutely free but let me tell you everybody well not everybody but I imagine people that are listening to this do have a decent lifestyle they definitely go to a gym or they have nice shoes that they go running in or whatever the case may be and having a therapist to go and see twice a month is really not going to cost you that much money but it's about just putting your focus there and if you want to get into a meditation practice I'm a Dr. Joe Dispenza student and his stuff is on YouTube for absolutely free. And so, yes, uh, people might not have the luxuries out there, but they're very easy to be accessible. The real key is, is asking the right question. And so the audiences I work with, people want to get more MBAs and more PhDs and all of these intellectual uh, skill sets. And I keep explaining to them that the intellectual aspect of human beings is got its date numbered. Because we just can't compete against artificial intelligence. Terry, I don't know if you know about GPT-3 and Dalai 2. Have you heard of these two okay. platforms? Take, take a bit of a tour on YouTube on them. But GPT-3 is an open AI, open-sourced platform that has an original text generator. So you can tell GPT-3 you want an 800-word blog post written about 14-year-old boys that play football in the mountains of Afghanistan in a comedic fashion. And within 20 seconds, the platform has written you an original, highly intelligent article for you to utilize. Now,
0: isn't that that's sorry that, you know, as a writer myself, that isn't that dangerous? It's not true. It's like saying that, you know, monkeys can write Shakespeare. But, you know, I'd rather read that written by a human being who's been to Afghanistan and talked to some boys.
1: And what about the fruit that you eat? Would you have a farmer pick it or are you okay with a machine picking it?
0: Yeah, that, that's different. That's not, yeah, no, no, that's but
1: it's not different. That's not that's No, not no, 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 <laughs> That's, no, yeah,
0: no, that's, no, that's no. one that really
1: shocking. <laughs> well, you understand that how technology works is we can't imagine a life without electricity. And we were shocked that the electricity took away 80% of people's jobs at the turn of the 19th century. Electricity was this evil thing that was taking away so many people's jobs. But today we can't even imagine life without electricity. I mean, it's an impossibility, really. And so the way we work as human beings is the technology that we grew up with is acceptable. Anything new is totally unacceptable. But this happens in every generation. And so whether you like it or not, Terry, GPT-3 is here. And a very good friend of mine called Ian Thomas, who's a prolific author, uh, has written 20-plus books. His new book is called What Makes Us Human? Written by Ian Thomas and GPT three, it's his co-author. So wow. let's just bank that, right? Okay. Whether you like it or not, that's technology, right? It's it's here and it's going to change everything around us. The second thing we need to think about is Dalle two, and Dalle two is an original art piece generator. So, today, again, after this call, maybe go on YouTube, Dale2, like El Salvador Dale, but Dale2, and you can tell Dale2 you want a picture of a pink elephant uh, teaching Chinese children Indian language on the stars of Saturn. And within 20 seconds, you have 30 original pictures created by artificial intelligence. Now, This is not a very good scenario for ad agencies and for graphic designers, but it hasn't tweaked you that much because it doesn't affect you. But this is going to totally disrupt that sector. But if you extrapolate this into the next five years or so, you can ask GPT-3 to write your movie script based on your daughter as the main star, and you can put that movie script into Dalai 3 and that will make you a mini personalized movie for yourself. Now, this is all coming. This is all here. And so our logical minds can't deal with this because it's totally encroaching on our creativity. But to remind you, this is technology. And so you understand that, and I don't know, don't know you that well, but there could be a slight panic in your mind. Like, hang on a second, what are you talking about? How is this going to even affect my life moving forward? But again, let me remind you that when the steam engine arrived, 99% of the human population were farming. You're not a farmer, are you? Do you know uh, any I've, farmers, really? Yeah, I have really? family
0: here, for, yes, my family, I've got family are
1: farmers. Okay. Yeah. okay, well, today 1.8% of the human population farm. That's 98% difference. And so, again, we realize that technology has this massive impact on us and we have to change everything we think about and how we think about it. And audiences find it bewildering of what would we do if we're not working 9 to 5? But the truth is, we haven't always been doing this as human beings. It's only 200 years old. This has been something that we've been practicing. So the future is strange. The future is unfamiliar. And we have to become more adaptable and in emotionally intelligent, not to be triggered to hold on to old identities and old ideas, to actually become curious and explore new ways to add value to the world.
0: I'm just going to ask you a bit further again, because you say, you know, about perhaps analytical thinking is going to be an old fashioned concept. I think one of the things here that's really important, certainly for me, is the idea of truth. Like if, if a story is written by artificial intelligence that's not based in observable facts. And, you know, I wouldn't want to go to a scientist or a doctor who didn't believe in analytical thinking, who didn't believe in an actual scientific provable truth that's going to allow you to create new medicines or new drug treatments, for instance, you know, that is still, there is still certainly a place for that. That can't be taken over by a machine. Can it?
1: (laughs) It already has. Please go look up CRISPR-Cas9 and go look up many of these other new artificial intelligence platforms that are not even only creating solutions to diseases that we have currently, but actually looking into the future, preempting possible future diseases and creating solutions for them already. So do you know what CRISPR-Cas9 is? I don't know.
0: What is that?
1: So CRISPR-Cas9 is a a new DNA uh, process that is able to read your DNA strands and look for the kinks in your DNA that could have caused uh, uh, heart disease, cancer, um, all sorts of different ailments and is able to replace your DNA with correct DNA and actually cut out the disease out of your lineage and out of your DNA totally. And if you look it up again, please do look it up after I've this. I've heard call. of gene
0: editing as a general.
1: Concept. Yeah. Gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9. That's right. That's right. That's exactly what's coming, coming through now. And so that is able to cure something like 3,800 3, diseases that we've not been able to cure based on AI based on its ability to bring in many more data points that a human brain can. So this is all happening. And as the famous saying says, the future's arrived. It's just unevenly distributed.
0: But we've also got to rely on humans to make choices about what we use. If you're talking about gene editing, there is an essential human component in terms of what is right, what is justifiable, what is important here, isn't there?
1: Absolutely, but I think morals are also very malleable. You go to different countries in the world and there's different moral standards that say something's right and the other things are wrong. And so like everybody's got their own truth, you know? Your truth is your truth. And then you go to the Republican Party and they have a totally different truth. <laughs> so like whose truth is their truth? And to be honest with you, if you know, if you, like, if you think about quantum science and what quantum science teaches us is that everybody's truth is actually real for them. It's true for them. That's what they believe. That's what they think is happening. And they can constantly like, uh, confirm that truth because that's how your brain works. It looks for those truths and then confirms them. That's how imagination works, really, in many ways. So look, here's the thing, is that it's unnerving to think about human beings not being in the same old place they were for the last 200 years. But we have to evolve. And so all your questions are valid. And in pockets of the world, all of the things that you're saying are true. But the way I track trends and the way I track cycles, I look at them on from a much broader point of view and then extrapolate the existing technologies and trends and then converge them. And then start, you start to realize that it's going to become really, really strange and weird out there. And the only way we can deal with it is to have an open mind to be curious about it. Because otherwise, we keep shutting down and wanting to go back to old ways of thinking. And that becomes less and less relevant.
0: Are we seeing, though, at the moment, a kind of reaction? You mean know, the exact opposite of what you are saying that we should do. Sort of certainly in political terms. I mean, you mentioned Donald Trump. I'm looking at politics in Europe. There are quite a lot of people who are mm. saying, "No, we we're, we're not. We don't want this future. We want the old certainties. We want to go back, mm. and we don't accept mm. this change." That's also quite a, a strong. Trend, of course.
1: Isn't it? Of course it is because people are panicking because they don't want to deal with this level of uncertainty. Our brains don't like uncertainty when they're in a high beta brainwave. High beta brainwave says, I'm in survival mode. I am in panic mode. There's a tiger coming to eat me. And so in this high beta, nobody wants to change. Change only comes when you're in a state of creation. And in that state of creation, you've healed your trauma and in an alpha brainwave. Your personality changes. Your energy changes. Your your ability to connect other dots that you wouldn't have seen otherwise starts to change. You start to see opportunities in chaos, not retraction from chaos.
0: And on a, a, a level in between these two levels, the individual and the kind of international, how can organisations try to create? that sort of a sense of calm so that when you, so that your office helps you not to be in stress mode as soon as you're back from holiday?
1: So the way I work with organizations is I explain to them that what most organizations do is make their employees schizophrenic. And the reason I say that is most organizations are trying to do what they've always done more modified and more efficiently, but also trying to be as disruptive as they can be. And what you're doing is you're telling your employees, look, do everything you did last year just more efficiently so we can make sure that we reach our profit targets. And then also think totally out the box and be somebody totally new and create a brand new business model that's going to disrupt our current business model. This is what all strategy sessions are trying their employees to do. And my response to that is, it's the worst idea you could possibly have because the future requires new skills, new capabilities, new KPIs, new, new everything. Because at the heart of tomorrow's business model sits something called economies of learning, not economies of scale. It's a brand new business model. And there's many brand business models, but economies of learning is this very, very strong business model that's growing. And so what I suggest to employees and to organizations is build today and tomorrow teams. Allow your teams of today to focus on the existing business, bring more efficiency to it, and really keep doing what the boy has done because it's necessary to keep the lights on. But then separate how you're building your business over the next two to five years. And that requires AI, data management, um, blockchain specialists, and people that are sitting with capabilities that your existing team most probably doesn't have. Now, a very quick example is to think about transportation. And what is going to happen to transportation over the next five years or so is exactly what's happened to communication in the last five years or exactly what's happened to music in the last five years or education or entertainment. All of these things that I've just mentioned have become digitized. And in the process of music becoming digitized, it becomes commoditized, meaning that it's accessible to us anywhere we want to go. In fact, music now gets suggested to us in pretty intelligent ways with Spotify. Now, you in the UK, have you seen an HMV or a Virgin Music? Those things are gone. They're not around anymore. Now, if you think about communication, WhatsApp and the likes have created a total commoditization of communication. So if you think about transportation, that's next because transportation will now also become digitized. There'll be autonomous vehicles. There'll be green energy driving them, which will commoditize transportation totally. Now, if you speak to a car company, most of them, are still focused on selling more combustion engine cars in an old way of having better business plans, uh, motor plans, and those sort of things. But actually what we need to start thinking about is a radical new way to build solutions for mobility away from buying a car. Just like we don't pay for communication anymore, we most probably won't be paying for transportation over the next five to seven years. So that's what I keep telling organizations is build today and tomorrow teams. Today, It's important. We need to keep the lights on, we need to pay the rent, we need to keep salaries going. But you also need a team tomorrow that's thinking about things in a radical new fashion.
0: And how do the tomorrow team persuade the today people to change? Because that's going to be the conflict, isn't it? If you've got two sets of people working in completely different patterns, uh, how do you win that argument?
1: They don't have to work together. It might be totally different business models. It might be totally different uh, ideations but at least the organization has got seeds being planted for possible and plausible futures. And so slowly but surely you can integrate some of your today people into the tomorrow teams and then slowly but surely make those tomorrow teams the today teams. And so it's not really about integrating them because sometimes the business models of tomorrow are so vastly different to the business models of today, they can't actually be integrated. Let me give you an example. Have you heard of a brand called Shein? So Xi'an is a clothing business from China. Xi'an today is worth $100 billion. It's 10 years old, but it's only really started to catch momentum over the last three years. Zara is worth $13 billion. That's 10 times almost more than Zara. Now, Zara is the kingpin of efficiencies and economies of scale and fast fashion. When they arrived on the scene, they pretty much changed every single clothing brand in the world, all the way from Primark, all the way up to Louis Vuitton, became a fast fashion brand. But now, all of a sudden, Chien has arrived, and Chien is eating market share like you have no idea. So what is Chien? Chien is not even a clothing business. Chien is a data management business. And what Chien does, it scrapes the internet and scrapes social media and finds the clothes and pictures of clothes that you and I have liked and shared the most, and takes those pictures of clothes that you and I have shared and liked the most, and computer generates 10 different variations in 20 different colors and puts it up onto its website. Now, not one piece of clothing has been manufactured yet. Everything is computer generated by AI and data. And when you place the order Of that piece of clothing, they outsource that manufacturing to a manufacturer, and they send that piece of clothing to you at sometimes 70% cheaper than Zara. And the reason is, is there's no design team, there's no retail, there's no warehousing, there's no logistics, there's none of that. And so what they're doing is created a business model called economies of learning. They learn from us what they want, what we want them to make, and then they go and make what we want them to make. Whereas Zara has a design team, a warehousing team, retail stores, retail staff, and it's a behemoth business. But all of a sudden, Shein over the last five years, is worth nearly 10 times more than Zara. And so my question always is to the organizations I work with, why didn't Zara come up with Shein? And the reason is, is that Zara is excellent at old business models, but is clueless about tomorrow's business models. And so what we have to do is build these tomorrow teams that can understand new business models. Now, will Shein mix with Zara? No, because it's a totally different business. It's a completely different business. Can Zara build a Shein? Absolutely they can, but it wouldn't be, make any sense for them to integrate in. And so for me, it's about thinking about tomorrow in a very different way and building teams to want to deal with it and allow your existing people today to incrementally change your current business and incrementally improve their emotional intelligence so that they can become more adaptable and curious about retraining themselves for the future.
0: One question on that. Might the next thing to do, say, for retailers, actually to be not to follow that to its logical conclusion, but to say maybe fast fashion is not the right way to go, maybe buying your clothes from the other side of the world is not the right way to go, maybe making sure that clothes are produced in humane and sort of well-organized conditions might be the right way to go. Perhaps the next really big thing would be someone saying, we're going to make this do this smaller. We're going to bring things closer to home and we're going to produce less and better.
1: Absolutely. I, I agree with you. I'm a fan of both. I buy a couple of things from Shein, but I also look for conscious brands that I can support locally and I do both. So I think the local thing is fantastic but I also think that you and I live in a privileged world where we can think about localised. If you think about the rest of the world out there, they're very price-driven. It's a tough world out there, you know. So, yes, I think we can sit and say, look, I'd rather support the local, but, you know, many people around the world. And I've seen some documentaries with Gen Zs being interviewed in Germany, in Holland, in all sorts of European countries. All of them are ordering from Cheyenne even with those privileges of wanting to go back to localized processes. But I agree with you. I'm, I'm a fan of the localized process, but I'm also just explaining to you that what happens to businesses when they don't have an eye on tomorrow and they're only just focused on operations. That was the example of Xian. Whether it's consciously right or not is a totally different discussion.
0: What are, do you think, the key things that we need to look at as individuals if we're trying to, to look to the future, get to get that balance between very fast change, and trying to hold on to some of the things that we genuinely think are are valuable and worth keeping,
1: you know, I think the future is allowing us to be more human than ever before, and think about it is that when we you and I finished school, or actually you know when we started our lives, the rules of the industrial revolution were all about fitting into a system. The better you fit it into a system, the more successful you'd become, and the system is called school. Uh, universities and corporations. And so all we wanted to do was fit into a system. It had nothing to do with our personality, it had nothing to do with our curiosity, our fascination, our genius, none of that. Just be an accountant and just go and do it, be an accountant for the rest of your life. Now as human beings we know that really where our genius and power lies is our unique curiosity. And if you think about what happens today with all our youngsters, all they want to do is be influencers and youtubers, right? But actually what they're craving deep down is to be unique in their expression of what they do and what they sell into the world. They don't want to fit into a system. The system hasn't actually even made us happy. And we can see because pharmaceuticals are worth double what they were seven years ago. It means there's something wrong with the system. And so the future is about fitting out. It's about being unique in your expression and utilizing technology to create businesses, solutions, services that you can find anybody around the world to buy from you. So if you want a hyper-localized brand that is able to sell locally as well as internationally, what, what happens to us as people, we seek out uniqueness. We love uniqueness. In fact, if you've watched a show on Netflix called Chef's Table, and it's a story about the top 50 chefs in the world, and if you watch that show, you realize that we wait years and pay thousands of dollars to go eat unique food. That's all it is. It's food. There's lots of food everywhere, but we are so craving uniqueness that we go to the extent of creating documentaries about how unique they are. So the future is about being unique. The future is about being curious and fascinated with what you are curious and fascinated about. The system is being commoditized. The system itself is that it created a surplus society, a surplus of similarly educated people doing similar jobs for similar companies, creating similar products for similar computer, uh, consumers. So the, the currency of the future is your uniqueness it's your ability to create something magical that only you can so actually the future is about being much more human whereas the industrial revolution got us to become robots in a production line called degrees and corporations so i'm highly excited about the future and my mission in life is to bring more optimism to people to realize that if you apply the old way of thinking the future is scary because it's unpredictable and so if you can't predict the future, the only thing you can actually manage is your behavior. And your behavior, if it's not adaptable, the future is horrible. So ultimately, what we need to do as a daily practice is ask ourselves deeper questions of what is stopping me from being adaptable? What is stopping me from being curious? What's stopping me from accessing new ways to think and new things to learn so that I can become a citizen of the future rather than being stuck and holding on to the old world?
0: that's a perfect point on which to end. Thank you so much for talking to us. That was a very interesting conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this Head Talks podcast. We hope you found it helpful and interesting. You can find many more talks on our website at headtalks.com or listen to our podcasts on all the usual channels.